Well, let's pray together. We're going to open the Word, and as always, we have an expectation and hope that God will speak to us through His Word, so join me, please, in praying just for that. Father, as we come together this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, praying, singing, confessing happily that there is no one else like Jesus, there is no other God in all the universe, all the gods of the peoples, as the Scriptures tell us, are but idols, figments of our imaginations. There is only one true God, and we are grateful to know you and to worship you as that one God. How thankful we are, Lord Jesus, that you have shown your love to us, your power, your greatness. And even as we were singing just a moment ago, we happily confess there is no one like you and no one else that we want. Although we, we confess to you, Lord, that our hearts are a mixture of desires and longings, of ambitions and appetites. And many of those even are sinful. And while we say with sincerity that we want only you, we also know the reality of these imperfect hearts. And so we confess that we're not only frequently tempted, but we frequently give in to those temptations and seek satisfaction in other places or people or things or experiences. And Lord, that is a form of idolatry in and of itself. So will you please forgive us and will you cleanse away that kind of idolatry and lust. Oh, how we need to have hearts that are whole, singular in their desire, and we want that to be only you. Now, would you open your word to us and give us eyes to see your truth as it is. Give us ears to hear your voice as you speak to us. Dear Holy Spirit, we are in need of your illumination on this day, and we are in need of the empowering uh, work of the Spirit in our hearts so that as we determine to obey, we will be able to obey. Do all your holy will and do all your holy work in us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Thessalonians. That is the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica in the first century, and it is getting near the end of your Bible, so if you find the Gospels and then keep going through Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians, you will eventually find Second Thessalonians, uh, and I want you to turn there and find it. We actually concluded a three-part series on community last week, and we began by looking at the, the nature of fellowship, what it means to really come together in Christ, and because of Him, we have a very special bond and relationship with one another. And that community translates into service together and fellowship together. We worship together as we're doing here today. We also pray together. And so that was the particular theme last week, that we want to be the kind of praying community that God has called us to be. And thanks to those 12 people who showed up this morning at 8.45 for our prayer time, it was great. And I know some of you said, I just remembered, I meant to come, I forgot, I'm so sorry. That's okay, make your confession to the Lord, and then just come next week. So there's plenty of room back there. Um, but one of the things that we did was to actually take a prayer from that booklet, that prayer guide that we printed out last week, and then we attached it to the midweek email. So if you weren't here last week, didn't get one of these copies, I think there are about three left on that back table, but just check the midweek email because there's an electronic copy for you. And in this booklet, there are about 40 different prayers of Paul taken right out of his New Testament letters. 
And what I want to do this morning is actually take one of those prayers and just walk through it in a very practical way. So this isn't the usual kind of preaching sermon that I do, although it's just hard for me not to preach uh, regardless of what I'm saying or doing. But I really want this to be practical for you, so keep your Bible open. And um, if some, some of you are in the habit of taking notes in your margin or marking things up, that would be very appropriate today um, because I, I really want this to be a, a working opportunity for you to do the very thing that God is calling us to do. So what we did this morning in the 845 prayer time was to take one of those prayers, 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, and we, we took just four verses out of this whole passage that we're going to work through here in a moment and highlighted a couple of things and then turned them into prayers for gospel hope. So you, you who were not a part of that prayer meeting, be encouraged to know that you've already been prayed for because we prayed for some of these very things to be taking place in your life or in this service or in our work and in our communities in the course of this week. Um, so there are extra copies of this also on the uh, back table in the lobby if you want to get one of those. Um, take them and, and use them. So 2 Thessalonians 1, though, is one of those great prayers of Paul and we're going to work through it, as I said, and uh, hopefully this will be a, a great help to you. So let me begin reading. Verse 3, you follow along, please, and uh, we will read through verse 12 and then come back and, and make our way through the passage. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end... We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a passage and what a prayer. Go back to verse 3 with me, and I want you to note a couple of things. And here's how I would mark up my particular uh, portion if I uh, were just sitting at my desk or maybe at the kitchen table or I actually have a really you know, special, comfortable spot in the den uh, where early in the morning I do a lot of my reading. But I would, I would notice, first of all, that Paul says we ought always to give thanks, gratitude, and notice the, the things for which he says we ought to give thanks. Two, that in particular that he mentions here, he could name many, many things, but he notes, first of all, your faith is growing abundantly. What a great thing to see in any church, any assembly of God's people. And then secondly, that the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. 
So gratitude, prayers of gratitude such as this ought to be a part of our personal prayer lives. It ought to be a part of our corporate prayer life. So when we get together in groups, as some of you will, when you begin to meet in your community groups, make sure that you take time to think through and verbalize together those good points of of growth, what's happening here. Gratitude for God's present work. Now, if you were to take this particular passage, though, and even to turn it into a prayer, what might that look like? Well, something like this, perhaps. Lord, thank you for the growing faith of our church. It's certainly imperfect, but we see good things that indicate you are working. Thank you for the increasing love for one another that we are seeing and experiencing. Thank you for the opportunities to serve one another. Maybe even get more specific and say, Lord, I I want to thank you that this week I saw so-and-so generously give uh, of their time and their expertise to help this other brother or sister in Christ who had a particular need. You know, one of those things uh, might be that you have a particular skill. And um, we were having dinner last night guests in some of our new friends' homes, and came to learn that uh, one of them is a really skilled mechanic, and I thought to myself, you know, I wish I had those skills. And there may come a time where I actually have to call upon Safat and say, hey, got a problem. And you know, that would be an opportunity uh, for Christian love, this very kind of thing, a demonstration of that overflowing love. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot, brother. That might be a little awkward right now, right? But you know, you have gifts and abilities of God that you can turn into expressions of love. And whenever you see a need and God begins to move in your heart, you just feel that little touch of the Spirit that says, go do that. Go call them. Send a little email. Text them right now. Just encourage them. You never know how those things will be used and blessed of God. But these are the kinds of things that Paul was observing in the church at Thessalonica, and he just begins to pray over those things with gratitude. Now look again at your text at the next portion. And now he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So a couple of things begin to emerge, and and this also informs our prayers. And I'll put this up on the screen in just a moment, but there's actually a sense in all of our hearts because of what is coming, and that's God's final judgment, that it creates a sense of anticipation as we pray. Now, there are two components of that final judgment, and the first is this. Did you note those words? God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And then you look down at verse 8. He speaks again of inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those are sobering thoughts, and that would fall under this category that I would simply describe with the word retribution. This ought to sober every one of us. Don't ever be fooled into thinking that just because evil is not receiving its full justice or that there's not a, a, a seen or visible payback underway through the court system or even just through a a community uh, justice that might be worked that somehow the bad guys are getting away with it. Furthermore, don't make the mistake of thinking you're getting away with it because nobody ever gets away with evil. Do you know there are really only two options for how evil will be dealt with in the end? 
they're either dealt with through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and as that sacrificial atonement is applied to the soul of a sinner, God mercifully cleanses it all away, removes the guilt, doesn't dismiss it as if it's a a non-issue, because when Jesus died on the cross, He bore God's wrath. He actually made a real payment, atonement. So your sin could be dealt with through the atonement, or you could be in the position of having to pay for it yourself. But those are the only two options in the universe in the end. And Paul is speaking of that final retribution that some will experience because either in the hardness of their heart or the rebellion of their mind, they've said no to their Creator. They've said no to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They've said no to the offer of His forgiveness. They've said no to the gospel and refused to obey when God says, you must repent and believe in Jesus alone. So there's a coming retribution, and that informs our prayers and even builds a sense of anticipation. Not that we gloat in God's retribution, but that we actually rest in some of those hard things for us right now where we say as a people, how could that guy get away with such a horrible crime? Oh, God in His mercy may extend a a season where that wicked evildoer doesn't receive the full retribution, but if he doesn't repent, he he will experience God's final retribution and full retribution in the day of the Lord. There's a second word, though, that emerges in this portion, and it also builds a sense of anticipation as we pray. And did you catch those phrases? To to grant relief to you who are afflicted. Oh, that's great hope. Now, the Thessalonians were experiencing a different kind of affliction. It was open persecution for many of them. To be a follower of Jesus and to confess your faith in Him, to gather for worship was very costly. None of us came to church this morning worrying that some group of officials might show up today and haul some of us away to jail or take us outside and beat us and threaten us and say, stop this or else we will kill you or we'll take your property. There were some in Paul's day who were paying that kind of price. And so that notion, this idea here in verse 7 that God himself would grant relief to the ones who are afflicted would have been such a glorious truth. On one side you have retribution for those who do evil, but on the other side you have vindication. It's the second word you ought to think of as you are praying. Some of you experience a different kind of affliction. You share your faith, maybe with family or friends, and they reject you, and some are openly hostile towards you. That's a kind of affliction. And you know, you can comfort your heart with this coming vindication. It's not going to be a day where we gloat. You know, as little kids sometimes in the neighborhood when finally one is victorious over the other, you know, it's not like this is going to be a holy na 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 moment. But it will be a great moment when your faith is vindicated. And even some of those questions in your own soul, is it real? Is all this truly going to happen? When God brings it to pass and, and you just breathe that final and great sigh of relief and say, it is so. Vindication. 
So what does that do for us in our, in our praying? Well, because the Lord's return is ever before us, and with his return, the re- reality of this coming retribution and vindication, we pray in faith. The certainty of what God will accomplish through Jesus Christ at the end of the age is reason to pray. So gratitude for God's present work, and secondly, anticipation of God's final judgment. There's more we could say, but let's press on in the passage and, and look at the next portion. I want you to go to verse 11 with me, please, where we're going to see a vision for God's ongoing work, a vision now for God's ongoing work. In verse 11, Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you. Now, that's tied to what's preceded it. It's tied loosely to gratitude. It's tied more specifically to the the coming final judgment. And so when you look at verse 11 and you see those three words, to this end, that, that is in a sense for this purpose, we always pray for you. And then there are two particular things. And it begins, though, with this great subject. See how I circled that? Special color in yellow. And some of you, if you're using colored pencils or, or, or magic markers or whatever, you might switch colors in your Bible there and say, you know, ultimately we are praying to God because God must be the great actor. He's the power behind all of this. And so Paul is not praying that these Christians would make themselves worthy. He's not praying that the Christians would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith, as we'll get to in a moment. He's praying that God would do something here, because at the end of the day, only God has the power to do what we're praying for. That our God, first of all, may make you worthy of his calling. Now let's take a look at that because even this, even this terminology of worthiness, of being worthy or becoming worthy is used in a variety of ways in our particular community, isn't it? Let's, let's actually go to the word calling, first of all, and let's make sure we understand what God's calling is about. There are three different references I want to call you to, two that I'll put up on the screen in just a moment, but the first would be Romans 8, 29 through 30, where Paul describes this unbroken sequence of God's work in saving individuals like you and me. It has been referred to by preachers of the past as the golden chain of the gospel, linked together by God himself, forged in this great fire of his salvation, of his mercy and grace, if you will. But Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 30, those whom God has predestined... He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. Predestination has to do with something that God did in the past. The call is something that He issued in the days of our lifetime. You have heard a call. I have heard a call. Some of you are hearing that call to be saved. And then from that, He moves to the work of God to justify those that He's called and predestined and ultimately to glorify those that He has justified and called and predestined. So four links in particular in this great chain. Now, let me give you a little more explanation of what the call itself is, and I want you to see 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, where there Paul writes that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, 
but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. See that last little phrase, before the ages of began? That would tie to what Paul had written in Romans 8 regarding predestination. He did something before any of us were around. Before your parents even thought of you, prayed for you, hoped for you. But notice what he says at the beginning. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. And this is where we begin to see a little different emphasis from what some of you have been taught or heard about your worthiness. Because you may have been told that it was all tied to the way you performed, all, all tied to the way that you did the good works that are, are revealed in the Scriptures or maybe some religious writing that you're familiar with. But notice what Paul says. that God actually extended this call and began the saving work, and it wasn't based on what you had done. It's tied to His purpose that extends way back in eternity. And it's tied to His grace. Again, let's pause and make sure we, we get this straight. God's grace is His undeserved favor actively demonstrated toward you and me. Undeserved. What do you and I actually deserve for the way we've lived our lives? That final retribution. The horrors of hell. That's what you and I deserve. But not only has God in His kindness said, I'm not going to give you what you deserve, I'm actually going to give you what you could never earn or deserve on your own. And that's what we call grace. And so He gives you forgiveness of sins. He adopts you as His own child. He gives you the gift of eternal life. Promises to reward you. Your little insignificant acts of obedience and service, and mine too, and, and not only promises that eternal reward, but says you will be forever with me in my house. We could go on from there, but all of these things are undeserved, unearned. All of it is His grace. What a remarkable calling this is. And that's what Paul is praying toward. Now, here's another passage that will help fill this out, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Now, he's talking in that first century context that the ones at Thessalonica, the, the, the city of Thessalonica, were among the first ones to hear the gospel and respond in faith and be saved. This is like the first church that is started in that town. So that's what he means by first fruits. A year ago, we planted a peach tree, an apple tree, and a cherry tree. Cherry tree died over the winter. Very sad to just watch that little stick remain in the yard. I finally pulled it out of the ground a couple of weeks ago. Kristen was the first to say, it's dead. And I said, oh, no, no, it's just, you know, it was a hard winter. Maybe something will come. No, there's nothing. So it, it got thrown in the dumpster. But the apple tree, even though it's only about this tall, I think has eight or nine Granny Smith apples on them. And those are going to make some great apple pies soon. Now that tree's in the front corner of the yard. In the backyard, we planted the, pe the peach tree. And we had, I think, six or seven peaches on there early on. But then a little child who will remain anonymous, I think, plucked a couple of those off and uh, tossed them at another child who was in our yard and that kind of thing. So four remained. <laughs> and just this week, the, yeah, the 
parents who've had little kids in my yard are looking around like, is it my kid? Uh, I'm not saying, all right? Just going to let you kind of stew in that guilt. But four remained. And I think Seth had one this week. Did you have one of the peaches last week? Okay. So that was the first fruits. And I picked the other three this week, and they're sitting on the counter, and they're, they're kind of small, but boy, they look good. And I'm eager to eat them. And I'm excited about the growing seasons to come. Well, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, you're the first fruits. And what does the first fruit on any tree tell you? There's more coming, right? There's more coming. So Paul, again, is expressing gratitude for these things, but notice what he says. So, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, so we would fill in the blank and say, must be more people who are going to be saved in Thessalonica. But notice this, how, how did God save them and why? Through sanctification, by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel. So they responded in faith. The call went out. They respond in faith. The work of the Spirit continues in their life. It's not based on the works that they've done at that particular point. It's just not tied to any of that at all. There's this glorious calling that is underway. And then Paul goes on to say, so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's future it's important for us to understand the nature of God's calling so that when we go back to the text now and we consider this next phrase, that God himself would make you worthy of that calling, we understand the order. Because if you get it backwards and you spend the next period of your life trying to be worthy of the calling itself, in other words, trying to work for your salvation, to work for God's forgiveness, to measure up in order to have God's favor, you'll have it all backwards and you'll never get it. The call to believe comes first. And, and gloriously, when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, He makes this massive, universal, eternal, legal declaration over you, and it includes words like this, you are forgiven and you are justified. And so now that, that standard has been set, and now God turns around and says, I've done all this for you, so now you need to live in a way where you, you measure up to that. And you and I say, but we never really measure up. And he says, it's okay, just you keep working hard at it. I will get you there. Remember the golden chain of Romans 8? Those whom he calls, he justifies, and he glorifies. But he does say to you and me, you do need to work. You do need to obey. My commands matter. No wonder Paul would say that God would make you worthy. It's his prayer. It's an ongoing process. Now here's the little phrase I just want you to associate with making you worthy. Really what Paul is saying, my prayer is that you would just grow in your Christian character. That you would become more and more like Jesus. Jesus that you would not get careless or lazy and say, well, God has already declared me to be righteous so I can live any old way I want. No, you misunderstand justification. He didn't save you to just kind of turn you loose and go back to the old lifestyle. He, he changed you. He forgave you your sins and declared you to be righteous and brought you into this remarkable calling so that you would never be the same. There's another passage I love that helps us to see into the heart of walking worthy. 
as Paul describes it. And that's Ephesians 4. If you want to look at your Bible again, and, and this would be a great passage to mark up, make some, make some notes in the margin, underline certain phrases, but listen to this. Now, this is written to the saints at Ephesus, so a different town than Thessalonica. But I think this all reveals the heart of Paul and the continuity of his prayers and his ministry. And he writes to them, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And if they, like us, were to say, well, what would that worthy walk look like? Well, notice some of the next words. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So those words, like humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with or forbearance, eager, uh, eagerly maintaining unity, those all characterize the worthy walk. That's a life that is beginning to demonstrate those necessary Christian characteristics that would say this calling we've been brought into by God is amazing, and, and we want to walk in a manner that's worthy of that calling. Those are the characteristics that our world is in desperate need of today. These are some of the characteristics that will actually create a ground of credibility, if I can put it that way, for you to evangelize, to share the gospel with your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors who do not know Jesus in a saving way. But we all understand the deadliness of hypocrisy that says, oh, follow Jesus like I do, and when your life is full of pride and arrogance and you are harsh and mean and, and you don't deal ethically with business matters and you cheat and you lie and you cut corners with friends and clients. I mean, it's like, please don't tell people you're a Christian if you live your life that way. You're not walking worthy. And Paul says, my prayer is that God himself would do this. So if we were to turn some of these phrases into a prayer, perhaps it would read something like this. Lord, cause us to grow in Christian character. Help us to be a humble and gentle people, bearing with one another patiently, even when we provoke one another and do stupid, sinful things. Give us an eagerness that always seeks the unity of the Spirit rather than our own selfish ways, and just help us to maintain the sweet bond of peace in all we do. You see, I'm trying to take the biblical truth, make it mine. You make it yours. And whether you journal this out or you just pray it spontaneously, these are the kinds of prayers that need to be characterizing us individually and characterizing us when we come together. Let's go back to the text. So Paul says, to this end... We always pray for you that our God, remember he's, he's always central, he's the big important person who, who we're praying to and praying will work, will make you worthy of his calling. And then the second phrase that comprises Paul's praying is that he would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. Let's talk about those two little phrases. We're asking God to work in us to bring to completion, first of all, every resolve for good. And what, what's a, what is this resolve for good? Well, that actually would be any human determination or purpose that you and I form out of the Spirit's leading or just holy sanctification that says, I want to do good. 
But keep in mind, it's all dependent upon God acting in such a way so as to fulfill it or bring it to completion. Let me give you some really basic examples. When you say, I am so amazed by what God has done for me, I want to tell other people about it, that's a resolve for good. It's a good thing to share the gospel. Or maybe you say, I have been so blessed by the Lord and encouraged and strengthened in my own faith, I actually would like to share that in one of our classes of discipleship, teaching children or teaching adults. That desire to teach would be an example of a resolve for good. Some of you say, you know, I, I just feel compelled to give generously and sacrificially, maybe in the context of our church itself as we receive an offering each Lord's Day. It may be that you become aware of a need in the congregation and you say, you know what, we've got some extra money we could put toward that. I want to do it anonymously and don't want them to know. And so you go through a third party or whatever, but that's a resolve to do good. Maybe it's simply that you want to spend more time in prayer each day for this church, for other churches in the valley, or you decide you want to open your home to foster children, or make a, a visit to someone who's sick, or you want to lead a Bible study. Those would be examples of resolve for good. And isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't simply write and say, hey, you need to resolve to do good. He's actually saying, I'm praying that God himself would fulfill every one of your resolutions to do good. Because even with the best intentions in our hearts, we still need God's power at work in us. Don't ever forget that. It was never up to you to begin with to work or earn your own salvation. It's not up to you at this point to continue in salvation. God has to be doing the work. So this human determination or purpose to, to do good that's dependent upon God would be how we would, would explain every resolve for good. And then he says every work of faith. And I think this may actually be a, a phrase that is almost synonymous, just kind of fills it out even more. But like these resolutions for good, these are acts prompted by our faith in God. So everything from sharing the gospel with someone to moving your family uh, as several of us have done over these past 50 years. I was thinking again, I'm sorry your husband isn't here today, Marty, but you know, let's just make sure that this present generation doesn't think we're the first ones to really get this passion and zeal to go plant churches, start churches, revitalize churches, take the gospel around the world. It's been happening for several thousand years. Now, the Larkins don't go back several thousand years, but, <laughs> but you go back about 50 years. And that would be an example of a work of faith. But go back to the text and notice this. We've been praying to God, but here it is again, by His power. By His power. So as we pray over our church, we're excited when there are clear resolutions for good. We're excited when we see works of faith emerge, but all of it has to be in the power of God. And aren't you glad that we're praying to a good and powerful God? good and powerful. If he were all-powerful as he is, but not good, you might never know from day to day if he was going to be inclined to come and help. If he were perfect in his goodness as he is, but he didn't have all power, you could pray your heart out, but never be sure that he actually had the resources to do what might even lie in his heart as a good God. But he's both good and sovereign. 
so we come to him and make our requests known with joy and confidence and a sense of expectation, saying, I'm so glad that you have all power in the universe and that you are good. So we read earlier at the outset of the service from Psalm 145, this is the testimony of our God. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. And He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cries and saves them. That's the God I want to pray to. That's the God I rejoice, I know, but more than that, rejoice that He knows me. Do you know Him? Do you know this God, this good and sovereign, kind and powerful King? Do you know Him personally? Have you ever experienced this kind of power at work in answer to your prayers or in your life just saying, how did this happen? What did God just do? And so as we come to this portion of 2 Thessalonians 1 and we, we make this into a prayer, very personal um, and, and practical application, perhaps our prayer at this point would read something like this. Lord God, by your great power, would you please fulfill every resolve for good and every act of faith in the life of our church? Would you give us a holy creativity as we seek to serve you? Let your power flow into us and through us as we serve you. We're praying with a vision for God's ongoing work. Now, there's a fourth thing here, and that brings us to verse 12. And this final category would be a vision for God's glorifying work. Look again at the text with me. Here's the big reason. And Matt made reference to this before we worshiped the Lord with our offering and, and had that prayer in our service. It's not about you or me. It's not about the fulfillment of your desires, your ambitions, your dreams. But here's the big reason why. Look at verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. What a concept. What does it mean for the name of our Lord Jesus first to be glorified in us? What does it mean to glorify anything? Well, it means to be honored or exalted or highly esteemed. For some of you, this is the happiest time of the year. Football season has returned. Some of you are such fans that you've actually been excited that ESPN has been putting reruns of old games on. And you sat and watched those things knowing the outcome already, but just like you're such a football fan, you're like, this is incredible. And you know, that kind of enthusiasm you bring to watching a game, whether it be in the privacy of your own home or whether you join thousands in one of these massive stadiums and arenas that have been constructed around our country and you cheer on your team and you boo the opposition and you heckle the referee when he makes a, a bad call, all of that is part of how you actually honor the game of football. Because you focus the energy of your life and anybody watching you has the sense that at that moment that game is the most important thing about your life 
But you know, God is calling us to live in such a way that our lives are so centered on Him, so captivated by Him, so attentive to His work, so in tune with His Word and this kingdom purpose in the world that they would say, you know what, they are all about the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have a conversation without, with that guy without him at some point turning into Jesus. You know, I'm not supposed to tell you, but do you know how much money that guy has poured into that ministry? Do you know how many orphans that family has helped to feed and clothe or all kinds of things? It just, and, and some people are going to look at that and say, it's a waste of money in the same way that some of your spouses look at your football fandom and say, really? Are the season tickets worth it? And to you, that's like, of course they are. I can't even believe you question this. But from their perspective, they think it's, it's ridiculous. But that's because you have a sense of, a, of glory of the game. You know, when you have a sense of the glory of Christ and you're living for Him, everything about you says Jesus is everything, Jesus is everything, Jesus is everything. And so your time and your energy and your resources and your passion and your conversation, it's just all there. And Paul's prayer is, we do all of this and I'm praying that God would fulfill every resolve for good, every work of faith by His power so that the name of the Lord Jesus might be glorified and honored. First in you, and then here's the second part, and you actually in Him. When you live your life for Jesus, He actually will honor you one day. Now, he doesn't put you in a place that God alone is, is intended to occupy. But the Lord Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I don't know how that will all work out one day. And it's not that I anticipate being in such a position of honor that everybody would say, oh, wow, Danny Brooks is amazing. No, it will simply be a time where all of those who have served God in faith will be honored by the Lord. We will be blessed and acknowledged for our humble, imperfect service in this lifetime. And I say, if he has promised to do it, and this is part of Paul's prayer, then I want it for you and I want it for me. But look at the last phrase according to the grace of our God. And there we are, right back to divine favor. It's not what you and I deserve, but out of God's kindness, it's what He gives. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the grace of God is for an elite class of really pious people. God's grace is for all. And God's power is for all. And His desire is that you would walk worthy. But He not only calls you to it, He's the one who comes in with His power and helps you do it. God's desire is that you would make all kinds of resolutions for good and then that He would empower you to do it. That your life would be characterized by all kinds of works of faith, some relatively small, insignificant, Mundane, if you will, but not in his eyes because he's empowering it and blessing it 
And he's going to use all of that to keep Christ central. And so in that great assembly that the book of Revelation speaks of, where millions and millions and millions will gather around the throne of heaven and they will worship the Lamb and praise his name forever. I mean, that's going to be a stadium unlike anybody else has ever fathom before and with one voice that assembly will glorify Jesus by saying worthy is the lamb that was slain but he'll also honor those who have lived for his glory what a vision what a reason to pray what a prayer script if you will now here's what happens Most of us, because we wake up most mornings of the week and our minds are immediately being populated with all the stuff we have to do, the responsibilities, the cares, the pressures, the anxieties. We might even open our Bibles and read real quickly through a chapter like this, but it'd be so easy to kind of just breeze through it and say, I I had my time in the Word today, but not let it saturate, percolate all the way down to the depths of our soul where it turns into the kind of prayer that I think God intended. And you know what? God understands that, and, and amazingly, it's another evidence of His grace. He's never threatened by that, although He continually sends us His Word and even slows us down on days like this. This is part of the reason that Sunday is so important, because you just have to lay aside that other stuff and come and listen and sing and pray and hear other people around you. It begins to put things in perspective. I suspect that most of us right now are saying, oh, I want to pray like this. Great. That, that's your resolve for good. But just know that tomorrow morning it's going to suddenly feel differently. You're going to open your your Bible to this very thing and say, man, that was so good yesterday, and boy, the Spirit of God was making things clear to me. And you're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12 tomorrow morning and go, is that the same thing we heard preached yesterday? And, And nobody got into your Bible overnight and, you know, used some kind of uh, you know, magic whiteout and rewrote it in there. It's the same thing. It's just your heart's in a little different position. So that's a point to say, oh, Lord, if ever I needed you, it's right now. I need you to give me power just to understand these words again and then turn them into a prayer. And you know what? Tomorrow morning, because there may be other things, even that really do require immediate attention, you may only be able to give three minutes or five minutes or maybe seven or ten minutes, but whatever time you give in prayer, It's time that nobody else can give. So give it. And then when we meet as a community group, Matt's going to say more about this in a moment. Thursday night, we're actually going to come here for a time of prayer and praise, launching our our fall community group meeting. So we want to see all of you here Thursday night. But we'll have an opportunity to pray. And some of you will kind of have to get back in sync again. And Sunday will seem like so long ago when you come here Thursday night. But we're just going to keep working at it. God doesn't demand our perfect prayers right now. But he does want us to pray. So don't despair. We're in this together. And as Paul reminds us here, it's all according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So maybe a final prayer would look something like this. Lord God, you are king of our lives, our jobs, our possessions, our world. Make the reputation of Jesus Christ great through us. Cause the glory of Christ to be known and seen and experienced through us and glorify us one day through Jesus. Let's bow our heads together and let's just continue praying for a moment. Father, 
You're not calling us to pray magic words. That's not why Paul wrote these things. But these are simple and helpful and living words. Words from you. And Father, we ask that you would cause us to believe your promise to us. That the prayer of righteous people has great power as it is working. And more than that, help us to practice this kind of praying. Thank you for those who are able to come this morning. Thank you for others who, though they could not be here, have been praying faithfully for this community of faith. Thank you for the opportunity that lies ahead of us to assemble in smaller groups. And as those community groups gather and and we begin to practice this kind of prayer, and and some of us will stumble through it on certain nights because we just are so weak and, and worn out. Others are confused and inexperienced with it. But would you just grow us as a community of of faith, a praying community. And even as you have used the imperfect prayers of hundreds of generations who've preceded us to accomplish your eternal work, oh Lord God, hear us as we make our prayers in Jesus' name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved or heard as we pray than the name of Jesus. And every resolve for good, every work of faith that the Spirit is putting into our hearts right now, would you fulfill it? Bring all of that to completion by your power, by your grace, for the glory of Jesus Christ. These things we pray in His most holy, singular name. Amen.